Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches' stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Today, we welcome Australian footballer Jordi Tucker to the podcast. Jordi plays in the second tier National Premier League's Victoria in Australia for Heidelberg United. Jordi has a variety of experience playing high-level football in the UK, being a part of the Doncaster Rovers Academy setup, as well as playing non-league football for 1874 Northwich. Outside of football, Jordan is busy with his job as a personal trainer and in a football coaching role, which consists of running small group sessions and one-on-one coaching sessions for junior players. Jordi enjoys making TikToks about his experience being a footballer and shares his story in the hopes of inspiring others. So let's welcome Jordi to the podcast. Yes, boys, we good? Yeah, yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. really good, boys. Really good. Yeah, I'm here in sunny Melbourne, 32 yeah. degrees at the moment. Oh yeah. man, I've had to put my lights on. It feels like I'm recording at night time because normally, like, I come into the office at night and uh, put my lights on, and I'm ready to like, I don't know, love on a bit of FIFA. But uh, like, I'm here in the morning, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it feels so strange because it's so dark outside still. Yeah, um, mate. Plenty of daylight over here in Melbourne. I mean, it doesn't get dark till about 10 o'clock, so we've still got two and a half hours. Jesus. Oh, look. That's one thing I miss, like, during the winter period is literally the the sunlight. I hate it when it gets dark so early. I just, I don't know. It's so much shorter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, because you get home from work and it's already dark. I remember those cold mornings in England, cold afternoons as well. You'd finish work, 3 p.m. it'd be dark. Literally, I was supposed to be playing uh, football this morning, um, but yeah, happy to uh, happy to call that one off and <laughs> <laughs> do this instead. <laughs> so, who do you play for then, Oliver? Uh, it's not. Uh, I just play with my mates um, in a Sunday league team just for a laugh, just keep myself um, active in that. Um, yeah, it's not very high level. We just uh, it's basically can you get eleven on the game. pitch? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you get eleven on the pitch and then? Uh, and then we'll play. But to be fair, we're on for a title charge, so hopefully we can secure it. Yeah. Oh, decent, that. Decent, love it. What about yourself, got... John? Who are you playing for? Yeah, he's got some yeah. good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, kind of similar to Oliver, really. Uh, it's just like a Sunday league team. Um, yeah, just with a bunch of mates. And uh, I had the game yesterday. I scored a hat-trick. I scored a hat-trick. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, but... Um, like it. What position do you play? Striker, striker. We're both strikers, actually. So, uh so yeah yeah like it like it both the glory men then yeah exactly exactly but when it when the goals don't go in it's uh it's not easy it's not easy um you know need that confidence but uh but yeah it's, nah, yeah it's yeah. tough trying to stay in form isn't it as a footballer I mean, regardless of the position you play it's especially striker because you're, you're meant to score goals every game and as soon as you stop scoring you, yeah. your coach is kind of asking questions right mm, yeah yeah Oh man, I, I I used to be like a, a pressing forward, and now uh, I got injured, and I've turned into a bit of a target man holder. <laughs> so uh, I'm, about to, uh, I'm about to adapt loads, uh, go back into playing football. Um, but now it's back good. to the olden day striker, then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Proper proper English striker. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Can you guys hear me? All right, so I'm just taking one of my earphones out because it's it's kind of weird talking when you can't really hear yourself speak. Because when, yeah. when you've got these noise cancelling earphones in, I can't hear myself talk. Yeah, is yeah. this all right? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Oh, it's sweet, sweet. No, yeah. Yeah, I used to have that. I actually used to have that problem with like my old um, headset. <laughs> like, 
I couldn't hear myself talk, so I don't know what I was like. If I what I was saying was like correct or whatever, but yeah. having these little earphones is ten times better. I prefer it. I don't know. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Because I find with the Apple earphones, um, especially. Are you wearing the AirPods or the older ones? No, nah, no, nah, the old school. Yeah, the old ones. Yeah, 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 the proper old school. <laughs> yeah, the wires. Because now when you wear wires, everyone looks at you like, what? what is this yeah. guy wearing? Can he afford $300 earpods? <laughs> <laughs> Not many people can. But um, yeah, so I, I, I prefer those ones because they don't cancel all the noise out around you. Whereas I've got these new earpods. Um, they're, not, they're not Apple actually, but I got them as a, as a gift from my girlfriend last year. Um, and they just cancel all of the noise around you. So I try to, yeah, I took one of them out and it's a bit, bit better now. Yeah. I normally just like, when I wear this, I'm just like whacking air out like oh. that. And it's like, it's fine. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How's your day been then? Have, uh, have you been up to much today? Yeah, yeah. What have I been up to? Um, so pretty chill day today. Um, so I woke up at seven with the miso. Um, and we just went over to the markets. So uh, there's this markets, these markets in Melbourne called the Hunter Markets. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a boutique store and there's about a hundred people queuing up to go in the shop um, before you go in. So I, I heard about it. The miso told me about it and she's like, all right, let's go to these markets here. And I was expecting it to be like 50 shops, this cool clothing, nice places to eat. And we get there. There's about a hundred girls queuing up outside the store. And then it's one tiny little shop with about, I don't know, 20 or 30 things in there. Oh we get there God. at eight o'clock in the morning. We're waiting in the line for about an hour. Uh, we finally get in this absolutely chockers. Like you've got all these girls running around trying to trying to get the last pieces of clothing. You've got heaps of these designer brands in there, Louis Vuitton. One, it's, it's all fake though. Oh, is like, it? It's all like twenty dollars, thirty dollars secondhand items. And my miso comes out with like ten things. <laughs> yeah, tripped <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So, so yeah, that's that's what I did today. What about you guys? Well, yeah, my day has literally just started. So yeah. half a in the UK, but yesterday, I went oh, to um, well. I went to Old Trafford to watch uh, my new my uh, my team, and yeah, it wasn't great. But we moved. Oh, we what moved. Was the score yesterday then it was one-one to Southampton, and uh, yeah, we had good seats. I had good seats, which was good. And uh, yeah, it was just a good trip. With my dad, I, I try and get down there as much as I can. I live in Leicester, so it's about a two-hour drive. Uh, yeah, yeah, big trip then. But yeah. no, it was uh, it was good. The experience you guys was good. Out the stadium. Got yeah, sorry, going man. Seventy-three thousand. I was just going to say the experience was good, but the result wasn't obviously. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's full up, right? Every Thanks time. United. Yeah, yeah, it's always full up because uh, you get a lot of tourists that go to Old Trafford as well. Mm. Obviously, my new being so big, um, I think the attendance was seventy-three thousand and our capacity is seventy-five thousand, so not too bad. Yeah, the atmosphere was yeah I, was, I was just saying because when i went over to england um this is probably one of my first times there coming back since i since i lived in england um and i was probably like 16 or 17 i tried to get to a liverpool game with my mum and we remember oof, we were probably living seven hours away at the time like where we were staying and we're like right we're gonna make the trek to go and watch liverpool play um it was an, it, there was a blizzard on at the time so I'm pretty sure it was, it was the worst storm England have had in a long, long time. So we trekked through the snow. We had to camp out. Um, so we, we hide out this van, actually. And we had to stop stop on the road in the middle of the night because they shut the roads off. So it was an absolute trek to get there. We got there eventually, just in time for the game. Um, we we didn't buy a ticket online because we couldn't get any. So we were we were expecting to turn up at the gate and try and buy a ticket. 
Oh. And, you know, listen, they've sold, they've, so we get there and they've sold out of tickets and they're like, right, oh, we can't sell you any more tickets. We've sold out. So we go, oh, is there anyone selling tickets around the stadium? So we're just walking around. We do laps for about 20 minutes, 30 minutes around Anfield, just trying to find a ticket. And we come across this, um, like this wee scouse man and he's, he's got like long shaggy hair and he goes, all right, lads. And <laughs> yeah. so we go, you're trying to buy a ticket? So we come up to him, we go, yeah, yeah, we're trying to buy a ticket. And he sells us this ticket for like, I don't know what it is, 100 pounds, 150 pounds. Yeah. Um, like, it was pretty expensive. We oh. buy it and we try and get through the gate afterwards. And uh, they don't let us in. They go, where'd you get this ticket from? And we're, um, we go, oh, we, we, <laughs> we got it out front. And they go, well, we're not so sure about this ticket. We go, can, can you try it again? We come all the way from Australia to watch this game. They try it again and we get through the gate. Oh. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, but no, we lose three yeah. one anyway. Oh, don't tell me you're a Liverpool fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to end this uh, end this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're both uh, my new fans, but um, they do sell like those tickets that they sell around the stadiums. Like I had um, a guy who lives a couple of doors down. He's a my new fan, and he went to my new Middlesbrough a couple of I think it was last week, yeah. and he couldn't get a podcast at the gates. Uh, a podcast, a ticket. I'm all over the shop this morning. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, early mornings. I know. Yeah. And, and they were trying to sell him a ticket for 90 quid. And uh, he was like, nah, you're all right, mate. That's way too expensive. <laughs> Do they so, sell fake tickets, like, in front of the stadiums as well? Or is it pretty good, like... I'm not too sure. It? I've never had to go through that process. Because yeah. um, they always hike the prices up in that. Mm. I'm not sure. So, yeah. Oliver, you're a lucky man. You've, you've never had to go through that process. Me, myself... I've had to go through that process and I've been very scared. But um, I have heard of a lot of a lot of illegal tickets being sold out the front. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm sure some of it some of it's legitimate. I mean, luckily the ticket we got in the end was legitimate, but there's a lot of people making some money out the front there, just showing pieces of paper that they photocopied. Yeah, that's why I'm always scared of making like transactions on like eBay and that, because I've seen the horror stories of buying like a PS5 on a piece of paper and it's like you just turn up in the post, and it's just a piece of paper with a picture of a PS5 on. Just anxiety. <laughs> I've got to see it in person to uh, to be able to buy something like that. <laughs> well, I'm the same. I can't. I don't like shopping online, even when it comes to football boots that I've tried on before. I know they're my size. I know that predators that I usually wear, but I still like trying them on in the shop. Yeah. See how fast you can run them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So get into the podcast. Um, a great place we like to start, and for the listeners to get to know you, is uh, talk us through your journey to date. So, who is Jordy Tucker? Growing up, okay. to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so we'll start off from the very beginning. Um, so, I was born in England. Um, I lived there until I was seven years old. Um, so, when I was when I was six, just before leaving to go to Australia, um, I signed with the Portsmouth Academy. Um, so, I was with what they call Pompey. If any of the Portsmouth fans out there will know, they call it Pompey. Um, so I signed with Pompey when I was a six-year-old um, and I spent a few months there. That was when they were back in the Premier League, I believe. Um, so it was a really, really good setup. Um, one of the older scouts brought me there. He'd been there since he was, since he was 20 odd years. Um, so he identified me at one of my local games, um, one of my local Sunday League games, actually playing for Paul Borough, um, which is right down in the south of England on the coast there in Dorset. So he identified me and I came to Portsmouth, um, had a few sessions there. They liked me, signed there. Um, and then after a few months, I, um, I had to move to Australia um, just due to, due to family reasons. So 
Um, my mum, sister and me moved over to Australia um, <clears throat> to sunny Queensland. So it's on the east side of Australia. Um, moved over there to live in Toowoomba, where I started, uh, kick-started my career for South West Queensland Thunder um, as a junior. So as a, uh, as a young seven-year-old, I'm also playing for my school team, Toowoomba Grammar School. So, um, yeah, started from humble roots, played for, played for Toowoomba Grammar School all the way up until I was grade 11. Um, same with South West Queensland Thunder, that was, that was my club team. So I remember it was quite tough balancing it because we'd have to do, uh, I think it was three school, she- three school sessions and two Thunder sessions, so two club sessions. So it was, a, it was quite a balance, but, um, you know, we got to have five sessions a week. So it's a good environment, I think, for us. Um, then at 16, I kind of, um, yeah, I spoke to my mum a little bit and we just had a chat and she, she sits me down one day and she goes, well, um, yeah, football's not really going far in Australia. And it, it, it kind of hit me. I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. We live in Toowoomba, a small little town of 150,000 people, which is probably the size in England of a, of a little suburb or a, or a little little town in England. Like, I mean, what's the equivalent town that you find in, in England, 150,000 people? I mean, I don't know the, uh, I suppose a small like town, somewhere like Grimsby, yeah. Something yeah. Like that. Grimsby, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Grimsby town, so, so, somewhere like that, so. Mm. Um, yeah, so I decided we needed more opportunities. Um, obviously, having an English passport because I was born over there and I've still got family in England. Mm. <clears throat> so I, uh, yeah, moved over to England um, at sixteen and a half. So I didn't quite finish my schooling. To see in Australia, a lot of those, so a lot of those watching as well won't know this. Um, our school starts, our school finishes in grade twelve in Australia. Um, whereas you guys are grade thirteen, right? You do your sixth form, year twelve and thirteen, then you finished. Yeah. So I still had a yeah I still had a year and a half left of school to finish. So it was a bit of a gamble, and I decided I'd, I'd want to take that gamble. So I started off in England in Essex. Um, so I started off at Billericay Town, the yeah. mighty, um, before the new owner came in actually. Yeah. So it was it was quite a small club when I got there. Billericay's got a big uh, big manager at the moment, then, um, or a coach uh, who used yeah. to play in the Prem. I forgot his name. Um, but yeah, no, I'd like to Google that, see who the, who the manager is. Yeah, see, I'm not sure who's coaching them at the moment, but it was um, Glenn Tamplin was actually the, um, the guy who took over the club. Like multi-millionaire or however much money he has, he took over the club and he changed things around. Yeah. No, I couldn't tell you who's coaching there at the moment. Oh, it was, uh, it was Jamie O'Hara. He was um, doing a bit of uh, yeah. That's right. So, I don't know if you guys know. So, you know Paul Konchesky used to play for England. He's played for Leicester. Yeah, I'm from. yeah, yeah. Right, right. I didn't know that. So, you'll know him pretty well then, uh, John and Oliver. So, Paul Konchesky came to the club. Um, so, this new owner, right? He came in, multi-millionaire, had a lot of money, and he sacked all the staff. He got rid of a lot of the players, um, and he brought in all these new players. And um, one of the first players he brought in was, of course, Jamie O'Hara put him on a massive wage. The second player he bought in was Paul Kinchesky. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know how much money he put these guys on, but it was a lot of money. So Paul Kinchesky turns up to the club. Um, I think I remember his first training there because I was I was playing with the under-21s in Villaricky Town at the time um, as a 16-year-old. This is when I first got to England. Um, and Paul Kinchesky, he rocks up. Um, being He's a left-back, I'm a right-back, right? So we obviously play against each other in training. Um, he rocks up as the left-back there. Uh, we're playing against each other in this 11 v 11 game at the end of training 
Um, I drive with, so I remember it actually, I drive with the ball. I take a slightly a bigger touch down the line. And I just remember this, this tiny little guy, Paul, coming up and he just studs me in the heel. This just comes in and just smacks me in the heel. <laughs> Absolutely goes through me. After training, I'm in bits. I've got all these stud marks on my shin. I'm bleeding a little bit as well. Actually, I was wearing a white sock, so it was completely red. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, I'm like, ah, oh, this doesn't matter what level this guy's at. He's he's here to prove a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get me? Yeah, definitely. I think that competitiveness like breeds like if you've made it to the top level, especially like being at Leicester. I, I remember seeing him play at Leicester. He's got a unreal left foot on him. Um, yeah. I suppose that uh, competitiveness like he'll have all the way through his life. I, I hear like interviews where you know Premier League footballers are talking about you know I can't lose anything. I have that competitiveness whether it's like playing Connect Four or it's playing a prep game. <laughs> uh, that that's always breathing through me. Hmm. yeah it's it's bred from a very young age 100 um even when you start the academy at seven or eight years old it's it's the main thing they instill into these young players i think it's you got to have the competitiveness because at the end of the day it's a what's football like a multi-million dollar billion dollar industry with all these players competing against each other for spots every week you you know you might have a spot of 20 and you've only got 11 players who are going to start so everyone's competing against each other so it's bred in those players Hmm. at the same time though you've got the opposite end of the scale where you're like, you know, competitiveness is great, but it can lead to a lot of problems for players like further on down the line. Like, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It can lead to like an unhealthy relationship with like losing, even an unhealthy relationship with winning. When things start to not go your way, you know, it can, it can cause a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, Especially if, you know, all that person's ever felt is success. Like an example of that is, um, I found with, you know, Mason Greenwood that what's recently come out about him, um, you know, he's never really been told no. Uh, he's never really failed. Um, it just feels like he can get everything he wants. And, you know, obviously it's come out and, yeah, it's just uh, dreadful to hear. Yeah. Oh, abysmal that. I was shocked to hear that. Dude, when did you find out about that, uh, John? Literally, as soon as it, like, I woke up, I got loads of messages from Oli, um, like, as soon as it came out, to be honest. It was like, I think it was like a Sunday morning, wasn't it? It was a really, uh, it was a, over the weekend. Yeah, it was, it was shocking. I, I, I didn't expect it from him, honestly, like, especially being so young, huge potential. It's, it's really a shame, honestly. He was, uh, he was probably like one of the best finishers in, in the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't he? Um, yeah, 100%, 100%. And, uh, uh, and, and- yeah, you, you kind of wonder what he's been taught when he's, you know, what, how much of that impact has the academy had on his current behaviour or is it the impact from the family? Because he's obviously spending the most time around the players he's he's playing with and the coaches he's being coached by. Yeah, I think this is an area where work could be done. It's like, so we, we talk a lot about getting released, etc. like support with that, but I think yeah. there could be support put in place for young players coming through, you know, how to cope with all you know all, all these new things like this new lifestyle um you know it's how do you manage that i think that's really an area that could be targeted in my opinion if not if, if it's not done already i don't know but um, uh, i've just watched the Rooney documentary and mm. uh, that's just been released on amazon prime and you know on that documentary they talk about all the pressure this young kid had at 18 yeah. years of age going into the euros you know the whole nation was on his back because like, we had no hope, really. And this lad who's being compared to the likes of Pele, Maradona's, 
the message. For, for him to go in with that pressure, I, I couldn't imagine what he was feeling. Luckily, he could deal with it. But uh, there's a lot of people who can't deal with it. Um, so definitely that support needs to be put in place. Yeah, 100%. 100% agree. And it's so I was looking the other day and there's the PFA, right? Um, Player Football Association, which essentially it was, it was kind of a network or a support network built to help all the, all the ex-professional footballers um, for when they retire and they do suffer with all these things that we were just talking about. Um, and I, I actually had a look at it yesterday um, because, uh, you know, yesterday I was, I was like, you know, I, we all have our times where we feel a little down um, or we're not feeling ourselves right. And I was, yeah, I was kind of like, you know what, some, some counselling or something like that would, would go a long way and it, it would help anyone. Um, with any kind of issues they're facing because it's someone professional to talk to. So I hopped on the website, BFA website, and I had a look at, the, at kind of the support that they gave these players. And it, it was great, to be honest. Um, there's all kinds of different topics they cover. And, and one of the topics they were talking about was, um, it was like valuing, valuing yourself as a, as a human being and, uh, and, not, and not just a player, which is so, so important because you're, like growing up playing in these English academies, like we, we weren't valued as humans. Um, we were we were just valued as players and what happens when you get injured or you stop performing well in, you know using that logic you've got no value at all then if you're only valuing yourself as a player yeah, yeah being involved with a lot of academy selves um i mean i've seen this a little bit in academies where they sort of know i feel like a lot of academies sort of know who they're looking at in terms of giving that pro contract to uh, and then the rest are really you know used as just a number to to help develop these couple of players they're looking at. Um, how did you find being in academies? Uh, did you feel that was the vibe? Like they sort of know who, who they're going to sign or, you know, did you feel like everyone had a chance? Yeah, yeah, 100%. That, that's a really good question, man. Um, so I've probably been in both situations before. Um, I've, I've definitely felt like I was, I was the one that was just making up the numbers at times. I've been new into an academy um, and I've, you know, I've signed and, kind of things haven't gone my way at times and I felt like I've just been there to make up the numbers on one occasion it's just like oh he's just there just to just to help others train so we can put these three or four kids in the limelight um, and give them the best opportunity they can to go pro but these other kids will just work around them so I've, I've yeah I've kind of experienced things from that point of view and I've also experienced things from the other point of view where uh, you know you're treated as one of the guys you feel like a valued member of this team um, so it's yeah, it's very difficult feeling the other way, isn't it? And I definitely do feel these academies um, do seem to have their favourites where they put three or four kids forward, like you were saying, and they just go, right, let's let's work on these kids and forget all the other kids. Yeah, yeah for sure. Growing up, um, who were sort of your main like inspirations? Um, was you always a right back or did you have inspirations in other positions? Who was, uh, yeah. who was the main people you were looking at uh, when you was growing up? And who who are we yeah. about now? Because obviously being a right back, you know, Trent and uh, things like that. Being a Liverpool yeah. fan. <laughs> That's right. So uh, yeah, no, good question. So Stevie G, uh, okay. surprisingly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> was my course. idol growing up. No shock to any of these viewers here being a Liverpool fan myself. Um, so yeah, I loved Stevie G growing up. Um, I used to watch every game of his. Uh, my mum really liked Stevie G as well. Uh, probably not for the football side of it. I think she just liked Stevie G for the. <laughs> Yeah. Probably for his looks, not his personality, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did not you like about Gerard? Uh, so I, I like his finishing. I like his first touch and his finishing. It was absolutely superb. Like, I, I, every now and then, I just go and sit. I sit down and just watch some of his highlights. 
And I'll oh, sit yeah. there and just watch his 20 minute highlight reel of all of his screams that he scored. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the same with like Runa and uh, my other one was Ronaldinho. Like they were the t- top two for me, and like I could watch Ronaldinho compilations on on replay all day. Like the guy is a joy <laughs> to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So, like, yeah, here's a question to you, um, Oliver and John. So, you know, obviously you've got Steven Gerrard as an amazing finisher, right? Didn't have the same footwork Ronaldinho has. But to you, what's more aesthetically pleasing? Um, on the ice, somebody who has amazing skills like Ronaldinho or a Steven Gerrard who can bang a goal. Do you want to go, John? Uh, I'll give my two pence after. I mean, like, okay, I'll, go. Like it. I'll just say, like, obviously, I think naturally you're gonna you're gonna look at the Ronaldinho because it's like he's he's doing things people aren't doing, so it, it, you're directly attracted to his kind of style of play. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm more me, of a Gerard type uh, for for me, but yeah. I think for me, the thing I loved about Ronaldinho and why I love like because you've got Neymar who who does similar things to Ronaldinho, but I don't like watching him as much as Ronaldinho. The thing about Ronaldinho is how much he enjoyed playing the game. That's what I like to see. You know, he's always got a smile on his face when he's playing. Like nothing can really affect him, and that's why I loved him so much. But then like. You, your Gerard, your Runes, who are just pure like aggression and passion. Mm. I, I also love to see that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a mix of the two. I think Ronaldinho was kind of like an innovator. Like he was using this like five aside skills and he was bringing it on the 11 aside pitch. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I can't think of anyone really that did that before. I don't know. And then obviously he's. He's inspired like Neymar's, like you said, who's who have like their own kind of style and yeah, I think yeah, he, he, powerful player like to inspire. Yeah, definitely. What about you? Yeah, no, I Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd agree with you as well because football needs more innovators, right? Mm. Um, you know, like Ronaldinho and Neymar, and you don't see you don't see a lot of footballers who can use a, a little flip flap to beat players and stuff like that, especially in the English academies. Um, and Definitely the Australian academies, right? It gets ironed. You would have seen this. So, like, skill gets ironed out of these players' games from a young age where you've got these youth team academy coaches going, move the ball two-touch, and that's the rule for everyone. It's the same for everyone in training. Everyone's going to move the ball in two-touch. And then if you're not actually practising dribbling, you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. If you're not practising your flip-flap every now and then, then you're not going to be good at it in a game. And that's why in Australia, a lot of these players, like, at a high level in Australia, can't dribble with the ball. Because yeah. they're training, playing playing on two touches all the time. Yeah, I think so, some academies have a different philosophy. Like, for example, I know in Genk, yeah. they really encourage for you to like keep that um, the skill. You know, keep trying different things, keep you know trial and error, learning. Um, so it's interesting that you say that actually, because they I, I know some academies do try to kick it out of you. I think even like at our level, you know, they they they, they say like play simple. Um, I think it's dependent on the coach because, yeah, yeah. you know, an example, a good example of that was, you know, Ronaldo come over to, the, to, to yeah. Manchester United. He, he's trying all these skills, Alex Ferguson. And, and, you know, like I've seen interviews of Rio Ferdinand, you know, they're just like kick Ronaldo out of training, um, like just kick, kick him and foul him constantly because, you know, there's no mm. <laughs> no place for that in, in training, like trying to set the mickey. But, you know, he soon adapted to the English game and started to be a bit more efficient. And now you see, I mean, I very rarely see Ronaldo even try a trick. He's so efficient in, you know, being a poacher, being a goal scorer. 
he sort of knows his role in the team and, and just solely acts on that. Mm. Um, so I definitely think it's dependent on the coach and what they want from, and it maybe it's position specific as well because Jaden Sancho, uh, I mean, I was watching him yesterday. The way he dribbles with the ball is is uh, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, th- that's actually a really good point as well. Um, I think it's it is dependent on the coach because we had this one coach who came in actually um, when I was at Doncaster Rovers playing in the youth academy. Um, we had one coach who came in just for a session. He actually worked with the PFA. Um, and he came in and he took our session and he, it blew my mind how he ran things because he was like, right, so I'm going to add a condition on this game. It was like a little like 77 game in shooting box kind of um, size. And he's like, right, I'm going to add one condition. So for some of you players, you're going to be on two touch. For some of you, you're going to be on one touch. And for the players that are really good at running with the ball, so we had a guy called Omar um, and Debo who were good at running with the ball. They were wingers. And he said, for you guys, you're going to be on unlimited touches in the right areas. And it was it blew my mind because I was like, well, it's a perfect condition because it suits every player in the team here, what we should be doing in our area. So as a fullback, I wouldn't really be driving the ball in most areas of the pitch, you know, the, the mid-third or the back-third. So it made sense for him to put me on two touches, whereas if you're a striker or a winger, it makes sense in the right areas for you to be allowed to dribble. So instead of just saying, right, everyone's on two touches, it's no, some of you are on two touches and some of you are driving with the ball. Yeah, I think that's really good because it's so game specific to what you're actually going to be doing during the game. Um, yeah, so that's a class way of looking at training. Not something I've not really seen before, so it's good that you bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, um, we have a lot of academy listeners who do listen to us. Um, so I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. So when you moved to Europe at 16 to pursue a career in the UK, what was that like uh, moving, moving back on your own? You moved on your own, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, my mum my mum initially came over, so she's English, she came over to England to help me get set up with things um, when I was 16. So she was there for the first um, three or four weeks, um, you know, just, just to get me my NHS card and all kinds of stuff like that that yeah. you need. Uh, but it was really daunting. Um, I remember coming over there um, and I think it didn't really hit me until three or four weeks after I actually moved there and my mum went home and I remember sitting there on my first day alone because for the first three, four weeks, I was setting things up. So it hit me as soon as my mum went back to Australia and left. And I was sitting there kind of like in my room in the apartment. And I was like, shit, what have I got myself into? Yeah. Can I swear on here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I was like, what have I got myself into here? Um, have I made the right decision? And all these thoughts were going through my mind. And obviously, I got really scared. Um, so I figured, well... I may, I may as well fully commit now. I'm already here. So I, I tried to give myself the best opportunity I could. I went calling around at different clubs. Um, I was set up with a college called the Appleton School, actually. Um, so I was set up there in grade 11 um, to go and study a BTEC in sports science. So I kind of had that, um, that hub just to spend my days at, I suppose, studying. But I did need a football club. So I kind of just went walking around trying to find different football clubs to start off with. Mm. So it was, it was a pretty daunting experience just being there by myself my first day. Yeah, I definitely think it's a it's a really good growing experience, like moving away from 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 your parents and you know you're on your own two feet. Because obviously it's not to do with football, but I remember when I got dropped off at university and my mom and dad left, and then it was like I know no one here. I've soon got like I was like right, I've got to put myself out of my comfort zone. You know, start trying to make friends and like instantly like messages in group chats like right, let's meet up because I can't be. I can't be like knocking around on my own because um, that would obviously be bad for your mental health. So, yeah, 
it's uh it's a definitely a great experience and, and something that i'd recommend in terms of like growing up because a lot of people don't get out of that comfort zone um and then don't have the skills later on in life um so it, i suppose it's a positive in some ways and a, a negative in some ways yeah 100 I, I definitely recommend any young player thinking about um you know maybe moving to another club um or you know maybe even moving states i'd recommend going out there and, and doing it um you know as, as long as you feel like it, as long as you feel like it's the right decision and you want to do it, I think I'd recommend any young player doing it. There's definitely positives and positives and negatives, like you said. Um, it's you know I think when you're alone and you spend a lot of time by yourself, which I did for the first few few months, or really the whole time of being there in England, um, it's it's pretty lonely just by being by yourself. Um, and you start getting into your head a little bit and thinking about many different scenarios. So I think my my kind of advice for anyone who moves away from home, um, not just for football, but for anyone is definitely finding a friendship group where they can go and socialize um, with those people and not, not being by yourself too much. Um, being, uh, obviously you're on TikTok a lot, um, creating on there. <laughs> um, someone I followed when, when you said you was like walking around trying to find clubs and, you know, constantly making calls. Um, someone who was quite inspiring to me on TikTok when I was looking at their journey, I actually followed it quite a bit was, I don't know whether you've seen train effective and the lad who runs that. You know, what about? So, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so funny story, actually. Um, yeah, you're, you're like this, John and Oliver. So I had a trial, um, I had a trial with, I think, I can't remember if it was UK football trials. I don't remember what it was, but I did a trial. Um, I was kind of in, in between clubs. So it's one of these posted trials, um, somewhere in the North of England. I can't remember where. Um, and the guy who runs train effect, of course, Nick Humphreys was there. Um, I didn't know what he did at the time or anything like this, but anyway, so his name's Nick Humphreys. He runs train effective and he turned up. Um, and he took on this real leadership role. So he was a player just like me, um, trying to get a contract at these trials. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and he kind of took on this captain role. So as soon as the coach said, right, we're going to start a warm-up, Nick, Nick Humphreys, not knowing anyone there, he goes, right, I'm going to take command of this session. And he just steps up and he goes, right, I'm going to set up two cones. He sets up his two cones and he goes, I want a line here and I want a line here. So I step in behind him and uh, join his line. And he goes, right, guys, we're going to do high knees. And he starts talking us through the warm-up like he's a coach. And we're like, we're like who's this guy? <laughs> what, is he a coach here? And he's yeah. just wearing some random chair. He's just a player like us. And he's just so commanded. He's yeah. commanding everyone around. He's like, right, we're going to do this. And he's speaking so loud. And people didn't really know what to think. I kind of looked at the rest of them and we're like, who's this guy? Are you serious? But, yeah, we all followed what he said and listened to him. And we thought, hey, all right, we'll follow this guy as a leader. Um, and then he gets to the game and he starts yeah, he kind of leads us onto the pitch um, with their 11 v 11 game. Um, and he just starts talking really loud on the pitch, commanding everyone, you go there, you go there, learning everyone's names, the saying like five names. I'm like, how do you, how do you know all these people? You just, you just met them. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm just there at right back, not knowing any names. Um, and he, yeah, he absolutely tears it up in the trial, I remember. Um, and then I speak to Marco, I go, yeah, how you going, man? Like, what's your name? I'm Geordie. He's like, yeah, I'm Nick, and we have a little chat. He goes, I run this this thing called Train Effective. At the time, they have 600, um, 600 followers on YouTube and Instagram. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, this is really cool. And he does an interview with one of the coaches there and, and whatnot. I get his Instagram, and we keep in touch ever since. And, you know, now, you know, Train Effective, um, Nick's, Nick's company has a million followers on Twitter and Instagram and, like, millions of people all around the world using this platform yeah. five years after. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. it's definitely really inspiring, and uh, you know, he was he was doing so many trials, like taking flights, and he sort of made yeah. quite a big. From what it looked like on TikTok, he made quite a big gamble. To uh, I think he like maybe quit a job, and he was like, "I'm going all in," and he was like practicing for so many days uh, straight. Yeah, um, it was really good to watch. To be fair, and uh, I'm pretty sure didn't he get a contract or a trial at Chelsea in the end. Yeah, so I, I don't remember who it was, but I think it was some European team that Nick ended up getting a trial or he got some kind of pro contract out. I don't know how it worked out, yeah. uh, but it's, it's a very inspiring story. And you would have, you guys, uh, John and Oliver, you would have seen a lot on um, TikTok, the 365-day challenge to go pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe, well, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think Nick was one of the first people doing that. He's definitely the first guy I saw doing that challenge. And ever since I've seen like 10... Uh, TikTok creators doing the 365-day challenge to go pro. Mm. And it was just interesting because he started this journey on YouTube doing this and he would film himself every day. And like you said yourself, Oliver, he was walking into clubs and he was knocking on the door. I saw one video where he knocked on the door of a pub and I think he filmed it and he said, here's my CV. Yeah. Who can I talk to? <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. And it, it inspired me to do the same thing. And I did exactly that with Charlton. Yeah. I suppose it is really good that when he, when he went into that trial and he sort of took the role of being a leader, um, I did a, uh, my master's dissertation on, you know, the psychological attributes that coaches value in the professional game. So they're not just looking for, like, you know, it was with Leicester Sitter, and they're not just looking for um, technically gifted players, you know. They're looking for psychological attributes that are really important to being successful in the professional game. So that were things like communication, you know, being a, I created like identities. It was like the identity of a warrior, and they ended up being like um, eight identities. And he's obviously showing uh, the one of a leader, um, which obviously the coaches will see. And he's obviously standing out and making a really good impression. Um, they'll remember him after that trial out of everyone because he was doing that. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely about taking your chance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's good advice for any young player that's watching this right now that wants to go on a trial. It um, doesn't matter where it is. Uh, I, th I think if you can stand out by being a leader, um, you get to training, you shake hands with the coach, you chat to the players on the field, you try and talk as loud and as much as you can. Coaches remember that and they like that. Um, they, communication is very important in any team you play for. But saying that, on the other hand of things, though, I kind of think as well that if you're not that type of person, I'm definitely not that type of person. I'm more of a reserved, quiet person. You can't expect someone who's really reserved to be like that if they're not that kind of player. Don't try and be someone you're not. Be yourself and, I guess, work as hard as you can at a trial you go to being yourself. Exactly. Because mm. they, they said, um, when I was talking to them, it was a blend. It wasn't having too many of the same characters. If you have too many leaders in a team, that's going to clash. That's what they were saying uh, at Leicester. Yeah, yeah. Um, so having a multiple yeah. of like shy, but like you said, you know, if you're working hard, you know, that's what that's what coaches want as well. And that was a, a psychological attribute, you know, that determination, that perseverance uh, to keep going um, is definitely something that they're looking for as well. So it's not just communication, what they're looking for. Yeah. And that's right. You can stand out use, using different methods, right? Like some players are really good communicators. Some players are really technical. So if you're more of a reserve player, but you're really technical on the ball, then go and use your technical skills and be real nifty on the ball and you can stand out that way. Yeah. Everyone has a different ways, of course. Yeah. yeah. I was curious, Geordie. So, you know, in these trials, what's, what's the kind of vibe like? Is it like, is it mentally, is it really, is it difficult for you? Because obviously there's a lot of players that are playing the same position as you. You want to stand out. How is it? How, how do you kind of manage that at these trials? It must be difficult. 
I can't imagine. Yeah, that's right, John. So I'm here with me. I, I always struggled when I went to a new environment where I'm on trial and everyone else is on trial. I really struggled in those environments. And to be quite honest with you, um, Oliver and John, I never did well in those environments. Um, mm. I've always, because of my personality, maybe a little bit more reserved. I'm not as outgoing, not as loud. Um, you know, I'd, I'd play right back there. I'd get on the ball five or six times in the whole trial. I'd make a simple pass and I wouldn't really do anything too elaborate. Um, I might be a little nervous to lose the ball or do something elaborate. And especially as a 17, 18 year old back then, I was, you know, I was maybe scared of a 19 or 20 year old um, shouting at me if I lost the ball in one of those unfamiliar circumstances where I don't know anyone. So I really struggled and I, I never ended up doing well in them. Um, saying that on the other hand though, when I did go to a new environment such as an academy, um, you know, where everyone kind of knew each other already, I, I think I was more committed and I was just like, right, everyone knows each other. I'm trying to prove myself here. I'll go as hard as I can. I'll try and be as good as I can. I think it was a little bit different. But that environment where you, no one knows each other is a bit of a toxic environment because you've got players who are just dribbling with the ball, trying to show off, hogging the ball. So you might get five or six players that don't even touch the ball in the team because mm. you get those players that just hog the ball. Uh, John, can you remember when we went to, uh, it was our first year at uni, we went to the football trials. Um, and, oh my God. You know, there's so many players there. There must have been about, what, 200 I, people? Yeah. And... Like, I we went into so it was like small sided games, and then at lunch they decided yeah. to split the group. Uh, half went home, and then half stayed on for eleven aside games. To, and it was like thirty minute games. And I'm a striker, and I must have touched the ball about like like you said about four or five times. And <laughs> it got towards like the final minutes, and I was like, you know, everyone's hogging the ball. I just need to like try and show something. So I got the ball on the half turn about 30 yards out and I just had a shot. I hit the bar and I was like, oh, maybe they've saw something there. Yeah. <laughs> I did get in, but like, it was so difficult to try and prove myself in that trial because it was so limited. Yeah. How did you find that, John? Exactly the same experience. I touched the ball like twice and... Like you say, it just you know, it's like it's, it's always the wide players, isn't it? That hog the ball. <laughs> no, but um, no, yeah, it's difficult to stand out in in those kinds of environments. I, I'm like you, Jordy. I don't think I I, I suit that kind of um environment. I, I don't thrive in in that type of environment. So yeah, it's oh, that's why I was curious to ask you your experiences. Uh, it sounds tough. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm I'm just trying to think of a way um where we can help some of the younger players that are like me and you, John, where they're a, a little bit more nervous and they don't want to announce themselves at the trial. Um, you know, kind of the, the way I, I took that was I would just go in and do my thing and be like, right, I don't know anyone here. No one knows me. If I don't impress anyone, it doesn't matter because no one knows me. If I embarrass myself, it doesn't matter because no one knows me. So I'm going to go in here and do my thing and not be scared of anyone else. And that was kind of the approach I like to take. I wasn't, I wasn't going to be real commanding and be really loud, but I would try and do what I can usually on the ball. So if there was a space there to drive the ball, I would drive it. I think it's also a way of, um, you know, if any clubs are listening, to be able to facilitate these trials towards, you know, different kinds of personalities because they'll thrive in different environments, like, like, like we've said. So maybe switching up the trial process um, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe giving them more time. I, I used to go to a lot of, well, not a lot of, I got uh, invited to the Birmingham Development Centre. Um, so I went there for like six weeks where you'd just go for a training session every week and they'd just keep, keep an eye on you whilst you carry on playing for your normal club. And that was quite good, to be fair, because you get to know the lads there. 
even though I was one of them that was, you know, quite shy, there was a lot more technically gifted players there than me. So as soon as I see that, I think, well, I've got no chance. And I sort of went into my shy self. Obviously, I've grew loads since then as a person. And I feel like if I had that opportunity again, I'd be different. But back then, in that, at that point in my life, I really crumbled. Um, but that was a, it. It was a good process, those development centres, I feel. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you first signed so with... Well, I was going to say, so was that one of those elite training centres um, linked to an academy or how did that kind of work? Yeah, so I think Birmingham City Scouts would come and watch your game and I think they'd see me at like a tournament or something. Um, and then we went and played, I think it was like a tournament at Birmingham and then I remember I got a knee injury and uh, oh. Oh, my knee swelled up so bad and I couldn't stand back up and my mum and dad were like, God, keep going. And I just couldn't. Um, I, I managed to ice it and it went down and I carried on with the trial. But yeah, I was struggling. But basically, they invited me again. And um, it was simply just, I think Birmingham coaches were there. Um, and it was in Birmingham. And it's just simply turning up for six weeks, like a six week trial. And yeah, yeah, uh, they'll just keep tabs on you, seeing how you're developing. Um, but you're under Birmingham Sitter. So I think that's their yeah, way yeah, of, you know, if you could grow into something special, they've got you in their book still. Yeah, of course. And you just mentioned your parents before all of that, uh, you know, when you got injured saying, get up, get up. Um, so that's another talk point as well, actually. What, what advice would you give to young players um, who, you know, they struggle because their parents are always so involved and they're shouting at them at matches? Yeah, definitely. It's this thing of process, you know, always praise praise the process and talk about the hard work. Like, you know, a lot of them are so outcome-based parents where, you know, it, it's depending on if they score a goal or, or they achieve something. Um, it, we're always trying to um, gear parents towards, you know, praising the process, uh, process feedback as well. You know, say if they're trying to criticise you, uh, criticise it in a way of, um, like constructively yeah. yeah constructively rather than the outcome because you learn far more from the actual process like the, the little bits you can improve on rather than just saying oh yeah you didn't succeed because you didn't score a goal like what 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 are the key things that resulted in that yeah. is it your touch is it you know your decision making etc so like Oli said 100%. process yeah I, I think as well John yeah yeah 100% because a lot of a lot of parents, they might not know as much about football as, well, mm. the coach and the kids themselves as well. So a lot of parents will be screaming at their kids on the sidelines saying, go and do this, uh, you know, like run faster, uh, score a goal. And, and like you were saying yourself, how, how do they actually score a goal? So is it they need to drop in a little bit deeper in between the lines, get on the ball and turn to find a bit more space to then score? Mm. Or is their finishing technique just not good enough? Mm. So, yeah, I think as well, yeah, for any parents listening as well, um, Go and educate yourselves more about football. <laughs> if you don't, <laughs> if you don't know a lot about it, there's a couple of podcasts that we've done with um, Steve Kerber and also Paul Barrett. So definitely go and check them ones out because you know their coaches are Premier League clubs and uh, but in the development. Uh, well, Paul Barrett specifically in the foundation phase, um, so that's really good for parents in that phase. And then Steve Kerber is more under 23s and under 18s. Um, definitely a good podcast to listen to about all that. Even if you're a player, I, I'd recommend going and listen to that. Yeah, hundred percent. We 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 always tend to you know 
refer to those podcasts because honestly the information the that gems. was uh yeah yeah oh, Huge, like, really good really good about when the when my knee happened though um it was more like obviously being a man you fan growing up I was uh Ronaldo was a big inspiration and and back then he was a, a big diver like rolled around on the floor a lot and uh <laughs> I took a lot of inspiration from that and I used to do it a lot so my mom and dad thought I was faking and, and doing one of those things again but no my uh, knee was the size of a bowling ball <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say I'm just on that Ronaldo diving thing so I, I liked Ronaldo a lot when I was younger I used to watch him when I watched one of the games here in play of United, um, I remember this. So he got a free kick. He won a free kick. Everyone's like, everyone just thought he got tripped over. We watched the replay. Um, and then we saw Ronaldo wink at one of his players. And we go, oh, what's he done here? And then we saw the replay. And he's just, the guy's missed him by about a metre. And Ronaldo's tumbled four times and dived. And I remember thinking, I was like a 10-year-old kid when I watched this. When I watched Ronaldo diving and then winking at one of his players, I went, I'm, I'm so disappointed in you right now. You're, you're like one of my idols here. And I've just watched you dive and cheat. And for me, as a young, like 10 year old, it was a massive thing. And I stopped watching him after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no, yeah, it's bad. And it still goes on now. But I suppose for VAR and things like that, it's really helping out. But it doesn't stop the players. And even the commentators, like, I think I was watching a Liverpool game uh, the other day. And I think it was Sully who was in the box. And, um, you know, the commentator went, oh, he should have gone down. You know, there's a bit of slight contact and the first instinct is for everyone to go down rather than, you know, trying to play mm. on a score. Um, and it was yesterday when I watched Man City versus Norwich. Foden a couple of times, riding the challenges rather than going down. Mm. Credit to him. But um, yeah, everyone's yeah. always calling for the just go down um, first remark. Yeah. I think, do you know what it is? I think as well, like the fact that clubs are like complaining or, you know, like, talking about the fact that they need to protect their players because they cost so much and, you know, with like the kind of medical bills are quite hefty at that level. So I think that plays a huge part as well. So like the referee blowing the whistle, at like small contacts as well, you know, so I think players are taking advantage of this change as well. So yeah, it kind of sucks, but what can you do? Money, it's always about money in football now. <laughs> yeah, 100%, 100%. Just going back to like your journey, so obviously, uh, we've, we've talked about your experience at Billericay and then you managed to go to Doncaster, go to Doncaster Rovers. How did you, um, how did that happen? And what was your experience like at, at Doncaster? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so I had a good season at Billericay Town um, with their under-23s. Um, I got in, I was involved with the first team at Billericay a little bit. Um, never made my appearance though, um, as a 16-year-old. So at the end of the season, um, I think it was the 2018-17 season, um, I. I actually had a contact at Doncaster Rovers. So it was the academy manager and one of my old coaches that I played for in Australia. Um, so that was how I formed that contact, just an old contact. And he went, right, um, let's get you on trial here. We'll see how you go. And at the time, I had just tried at Charlton FC. Um, I think they were still League One at the time. Um, so not a Premier League Charlton, <laughs> definitely not. Um, so, I, yeah, I went on Charlton. I was there for about a week or two. Um, at the, the end of the two weeks with Charlton, they said, they said, listen, mate, um, you know, you're quite honestly, you're off the pace of some of our academy boys. Um, you're, you know, at, at this rate, we wouldn't look to offer you a professional contract. So there's not much point us signing you if we we're giving out our pro contracts in a year. So there's not much point us signing you if we don't think you're ready for a pro contract now. So I went, OK, cool. Um, can you give me any advice? So what's the reason why you don't want to sign me? And they go, well, 
um, you know, it's mainly your foot speed. And I, I went, okay, okay. Um, so they said, yeah, you're not really fast enough, especially as a fullback. We need a fullback who moves his feet quick. So better footwork, fast feet. Um, so I went, okay. And I, I went and worked on that. So I spent the whole preseason working on my foot speed. Um, you know, so lots of ladder work, um, not just ladder work though, like cones and stuff like that. Just anything that involves your feet moving really quickly, reacting to stimulus as well. Um, so someone throws the ball, you go and get it using, moving your feet quickly. Um, just stuff like that. So I improved my foot speed, did a bit of, um, plyometrics and worked on my strength in the gym um, got really really strong over the uh, over the next four or five weeks um, obviously going back to the Doncaster Rovers contact got that contact there um, four weeks later and then I went into Doncaster um, for my first session so I called a train up from uh, where was I Essex I called about a two or three hour train up to uh, Doncaster um, had my trial on Monday <clears throat> first first session there was a game I believe no, I had one session. So I had a training session with Doncaster on the Thursday, had another session on the Friday. Um, then they said, right, we've got a game on the Saturday. So I played the game, did really well on Saturday, um, absolutely killed it. And then after that game, they went, right, like we want to sign you. Um, so I was absolutely buzzed because you've got to remember guys as well. I was this little Australian kid who'd, um, you know, who hadn't played for a pro club before, obviously by my stint at Portsmouth when I was seven, but I played my whole career in Australian clubs. So at this point, I'm like, right, I've achieved my dream so far. I'm involved now in a professional football environment in, in England. This is massive. <laughs> so I was really, really happy. Um, I was signed there. I couldn't play for the first probably seven or eight weeks at Doncaster um, because I wasn't internationally cleared to play in the football leagues. So they had to get my international clearance and it took months. I was waiting. I would go to games. I was missing it so much. I just wanted to play. Eventually got my got my appearance for them, for the under-18s. and. Um, came on, played like 20, 30 minutes, did really, really well there. Um, so, yeah, played a few games, did well. Um, and then I think Christmas came around and I started to drop off the pace a little bit. Um, and I was, I was starting to feel really fatigued and tired, like my legs were really tired and I, I wasn't sure what it was. Um, and then I just I kind of fell off the pace and stopped playing as well as I was. And then my that time of the year came around, the decisions, the gaffer, actually Darren Ferguson, so wow. those of you might know Darren Ferguson's Alex Ferguson's son. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Do you guys know that? Yeah, yeah. I, I watched the um, Alex Ferguson uh, documentary uh, that came out not so long ago. And uh, yeah, he was, he was in there. He was part of the Man U setup uh, at one point, weren't he? Um, yeah, Darren, yeah. I'm not so sure. I'd, yeah, I guess he was. Um, I only know him at Doncaster. So he was the first team manager. Um, at Doncaster Rovers, old Darren Ferguson. So I'd have a lot of sessions with him training with the first team most days. Um, and he was, yeah, he was a very hands-on guy. Um, reminded me a bit of his dad, not that I'd ever been coached by Sarah Alex Ferguson, but I'd just seen videos of him. And he was a bit like his dad. He's really hands-on, very tactical. And sometimes we'd be there with the first team. Um, we'd, it'd just be an hour of tactics. No balls involved. It's like, right, we're going to shadow each other and we're going to move left to right. And this is what happens in this scenario. And we went through different scenarios in the game. And don't get wrong, us youth team players were just there to make up the numbers at the time. We were just, we were almost like moving mannequins for the first team players. But for an 18-year-old, it was a great experience working with Alex Ferguson's son. And obviously some of these, these top players who have played, some of them in the championship in the Premier League, you know, there were players on loan there from Chelsea, uh, from Man City. Yeah. And stuff like that with their under 23. So it was a great experience there. Um, and then back to what I was saying before as well, um, Oliver and John. So the decisions came around. Um, I think it was in, what was it? 
yeah, it's around Christmas, just after Christmas, we got our decision. So um, Alex uh, Ferguson called me up to the office um, and he sat me down and he went, um, right, we're, we're not going to sign you. Um, we're not going to put you on a professional contract. Um, and obviously, I'm, you know, I'm just like, shit, absolutely gutted about this at the time. Um, I, I, I saw it coming because my performances weren't as good as what they had been before. So leading up to that moment, my performance has dropped off, as I've said. So it came as no surprise to me, but it was still absolutely cutting. You know, it cut you. Um, and yeah, and it, he gave an explanation that he said, uh, if I can remember, it was a long time ago, but he said something along the lines of, um, you know, your performances recently haven't been as good as, as they were when we first signed you. So we're not going to offer you a contract here. Um, and I walked down the stairs and I was, I was, I was cut, man. Just talking about that um, process of how they released you, were there any support afterwards in terms of you know, seeing how you're getting on? Um, and also, were you focusing on education much, like during all this time? So, yeah, so we were going to, uh, we were going to college once a week okay. um, during the academy. So every Wednesday we'd do a full... So we'd train full-time and then we'd have Wednesdays off of football. And then on Wednesdays we'd spend a full day at college. Um, so I was with the Do Club Doncaster Rovers um, College and we'd work there once a week and it was great. Yeah, so education was good alongside that. Not that we put a lot of effort into our education because we just wanted to play football. Mm. So we didn't try very hard with our education, which is not a good thing. I don't recommend that to, to any young player, uh, but we were just young players who wanted to play. And in, in, in terms of the support after, it was <laughs> it was none. We didn't get any support after. Taking me on the academy manager was great. Um, you know, I was... I got on with him. He was a really nice guy and he would call me, I think he called me up once after a few months later to check on me and say, have you started uni or what are you doing? But in terms of the support from the club, we didn't get anything from the club. Yeah. Would yeah. you have liked, would you have liked support? Would you, would you? Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, support would have been great because for any young player, it doesn't matter what academy you've been in uh, or what team you've been in premiership or league two. Support, support is exactly what a young player needs, especially when I'm on the other side of the world to my parents. Don't get me wrong, I'm a phone call away from my parents and, and it's great. I can chat to them on the phone, on Facebook Messenger, I can FaceTime them. But I still I, I still would have liked support from a professional. Mm, yeah. I've looked yeah. on your... Yeah. Obviously, I've been a fo fo follower of your TikTok and um, yeah. you know, I saw one of your messages is, you know, going pro isn't the, the only option. And when I was yeah, doing a yeah, lot yeah. When I was doing a lot of research around, you know, um, being released and, you know, um, how that process can be made more positive rather than negative. A lot was around, you know, having other options and having a wider identity. Uh, when you say going pro isn't the only option, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, so when you say that people don't like you when you say stuff like going pro isn't the only option I never liked anyone that said that to me I was like well what's the point of having a plan B because you're just planning to fail so I'm like it is the only option when I was younger but I think if you change your thinking you go well okay going pro is an option but what about I get an education I maybe start a TikTok and I get a bit of money that way and I also try and go pro you know so, so what if I have a full time job but I'm still focusing on football so what if I'm earning enough money with football um, to be able to supplement my income. But I'm also working a full-time job or a part-time job as well. So that's kind of what I mean as well. I still mean football can be your main thing and you can take it seriously. But at the same time, you need another way of, of earning money in case football doesn't work out. So you can do both alongside each other. Yeah. I think it's also a thing of, you know, let's say you did get released. Um, when I talk about having a wider identity, I mean, 
you know, if, say if you got released from a football club and, you know, there's no other real prospects happening about where you're going to go, you know, your whole identity is solely within mm-hmm. being a footballer, you know, you're, let's say, Geordie the footballer, Oliver the footballer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then that, that title gets taken away from you. Mm. who are you now you know so it's more just a process of you know adding things to your identity it's not like oh I'm, I've got a plan b you know it's more I've just I'm just a more as a person you know I've mm. got more things to, to yes. talk about. Um, I definitely think a lot of young footballers need to to adopt that mindset that you're more than just a footballer you've got so many other interests and, and so many other streams of income I mean we're in 2022 the amount of things you can make money from, just from your hobbies and stuff, you know, just get another hobby uh, that, that you can fall back on. We've had a, a lot of people come on and said, you know, they were so glad that that, uh, that they do other things as hobbies other than just the sport that they play in. Um, I definitely think it's just so important. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I think, on, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, like, Oliver and I, like, we're in the process of, like, getting accredited to become a sports psychologist and as sports psychologists we're that's really what we're trying to promote we're trying to make the athletes realize that you know they're a person and an athlete so yeah it's it's really a really important message to promote honestly um yeah definitely even just because well. yeah no i was just saying like following on from that time it's like if you think about it logically as well so let's say you're a 14 year old um player in, a, in an academy anyway um, so alongside playing football full-time and obviously doing your education once a week, so that you can start up your own YouTube channel. Mm. Like, it doesn't have to be TikTok. It could be your YouTube channel. And you, you just make videos of you in the academy. Um, or you don't even have to bring your phone to academy sessions if you don't feel comfortable filming around your friends. You can, you can go, because you're going to train individually by yourself. So when you go to the park, go and train yourself, go and film your football sessions and put that on YouTube and build up a following that way. And that might turn into an income. But it's also a hobby and it's bettering you as a person because what, what it's what it's improving is it's improving your content creation skills and your ability to speak and train in front of a camera and edit videos. So that in itself can lead to a, another form of income later on. If someone wants to employ you as a content creator or editing their videos for them. 100%. Definitely. Um, so after you'd been released, you know, for, for any young footballers listening out there who have gone through a similar process or, or about to go through that process, what advice would you give them? And how did you get yourself, you know, back on your feet? And what were your instant thoughts and what direction did you go through after that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was really tough for me getting released from the academy uh, because as we were speaking about before, guys, I saw myself as a footballer and I didn't see much value as a human being because let's, let's be honest, I didn't have any skills or qualifications at that time. As a 16-year-old, I literally had no qualifications apart from I'd, I'd, done, a, I'd done a bit of a BTEC for a year in sports science. So I didn't really have any qualifications. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? If I go and work in a job, I'm going to work in somewhere like Tesco's, local supermarket. Am I going to be doing this for the rest of my life? And that was my thought process. So I'm like, football must be over now because I've got released. And it didn't even cross my mind that I could go and earn a a good money from football playing in the lower leagues as a semi-professional footballer and then doing things alongside that as well. So... I didn't think I had any, any other interest. And I thought, well, my life's over. Mm. <laughs> and, then I, and then I obviously started discovering myself as a person and what I like to do. And, um, you know, like I, I kind of, what, what did I go into after? I mean, 
it was a while after that that I started creating content. But I mean, I started going to a little bit of coaching after this and I saw value in myself as a football coach. Yeah, I, um, I did a, a, a placement at Solly or Moors um, in their under-18s and under-23s as a coach. And one of their head coaches there, and he's also the manager of Geisler um, in the National League North, and he promotes to young academy players who, he basically is just straight with them and says, you know, there's a lot of value in having a career in non-league and having a job alongside, and you can actually earn more money that way than being, say, a League Two player or a National League player who, who are on full-time contracts. You can actually earn more money being on a part-time contract and having another job. Plus, you've got that wider identity, so that psychological benefit as well. Um, so I think that was super interesting and a message that we should really try and promote because a lot of young footballers don't see it that way. They always think, you know, the professional contract is the, the be-all and end-all. Um, and if you don't get it, you sort of fail. But no, there's a, there's a lot of value in getting that semi-pro um, sort of part-time contract and having a job alongside it. Mm. It can be just as good. Yeah. 100%. And I guess you've got to work out then um, like whilst you're playing football, but also maybe after you're playing football as well, if you, when you get released as an academy, but what your interests are, because a lot of them actually don't know what they like doing. As, as a young academy player, I didn't really think I had any other interests apart from playing football. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I saw myself as just a footballer, so it's discovering what kind of things interest you. It might be You might like listening to music, you might like creating content. Uh, you know, you might like coaching other people as well. So maybe you could go into coaching, um, you know, alongside a job. But it doesn't have to be that way where you you start off working in Tesco's to get a quick bit of money after you get released from the academy. It doesn't have to be that way for the rest of your life. It might just be that way until you're 19, 20, and then you can further your education or go into something that you want to do. I think a lot of people from a young age think that they're stuck in their job for the rest of their life. And they see people working in Tesco's and they go, this is going to be me until I'm 50 years old. And it's not the case at all because there's so much opportunity out there with social media and the internet nowadays, you change jobs 10 times in your lifetime. You might yeah. do four jobs at once. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Um, I saw during your journey that you went on trial at uh, Ludogratz. What was that um, experience like? What, what actual country is that in? So, yeah, so Ludogratz is, um, is in Bulgaria. So it was a really interesting yeah. place. Um, so Ludogratz is in a town called Razgrad, I believe, um, with 20 to 30,000 people. So a very small town. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think it's around that size. Mm. So I went there really weird. I, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I got the contact at, at Ludogratz first. Um, so it was the day after I'd been released by Doncaster, actually. Um, and I went into a coffee shop and I was by myself. I was wearing my Doncaster kit, I think, still. Um, or maybe it was the day of. I don't, I don't really remember. But it was, I got released from Doncaster. I went into a coffee shop. And there was this guy sitting there. And then he goes, you play for Doncaster? I said, did play for Doncaster. No uh, longer, mate. Straight, straight away, and straight he, away in the heart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think a tear even dripped down. From my <laughs> but anyway, I'm like, is this guy here to, is he here to slander me? What, what's the crap, mate? What are you here to tell me? And he goes, uh, oh, okay, sit down. We'll have a chat. And I had a chat to him. Real nice guy. We have a coffee. Um, he buys me coffee and he goes, uh, I'm a boxing coach um, and I played football when I was younger as well. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he goes, I actually have some contacts in Bulgaria at Ludogrets. You heard of Ludogrets? And I go, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's that Europa League team, right? They're playing the Europa League. He's like, yeah, yeah, sweet. Um, so we get talking. I do a few sessions with him in his boxing gym just to get fit. Um, and like later on, like you know, way later, it might be a few months later, he sends me to Bulgaria with his contact there. Um, his contact's actually the security, I think it was the head security guard at 
postcard? Is is the contact, and then he obviously sent my CV and my videos to one of the academy managers. Um, so anyway, yeah, I go and meet this guy. Um, his name's Atonis. Atonis, I'm like, oh, geez, this is someone I should be scared of. This big boxing guy called Adonis, <laughs> and he meets me at the airport, picks me up. He goes, right, we'll go to the club. Um, so anyway, yeah, we get there to Razgrad, tiny little town. Um, get my stuff settled, go and meet the academy manager. He takes me out for dinner. Um, so I get treated really well. He takes me out for dinner with his wife, um, who speaks really good English. He didn't speak much English. Um, they pay for the meal and everything, real expensive restaurant. Go back to the hotel. Um, I get into the club the next morning, into Ludogrets. Um, greet all the players. None of them speak English. Absolutely bizarre being in a place where you don't speak a word of their language. Yeah. So no one speaks English. I'm like, right, am I in the right place here? Like, yeah, they give me my towel, give me my kit. <laughs> so I go and get changed, get onto the field there, meet all the coaches and stuff. Um, and it was just such a weird experience not speaking the same language as anyone there. I think there was like, there was one or two players that could speak a bit of English, but none of the coaches, the physio, no one spoke English. Mm. So I get to my third day there. Uh, and one of the players, so I, I get the ball. It was in one of those rondos. Um, I knocked the ball away first touch passing it off to one of the other players. And one of the players comes in and he smacks my ankle um, and my foot just rolls and he gets me right in the side there and I sprain my ankle, completely rolls onto its side and I'm just, um, it's bruised instantly almost. So I'm in a lot of pain here. Go and see the physio. It's all swollen. And he goes, right, you got to run on it. <laughs> okay. okay, mate, it's swollen. I just sprained my ankle and he goes, see if you can run on it. So he makes me run and I try and run a lap. And no hope. So my time came to an end very, very soon at Ludogrets. I think that's an interesting uh, thing, though, about, you know, no one spoke English. We've just had a, um, our friend on from, from Loughborough. He went to go and play pro in uh, Mexico uh, basketball. And he was saying like, he played a full season where no one spoke English, um, not even the, the coach didn't speak English. And, you know, like he shouting instructions to Joey and, you know, he didn't really know. He was just like, yeah, I got you. And then he'd go and play like his game. And, you know, it really helped him like develop um, as, a, as, a, as a person from that experience. Um, definitely a really good podcast to listen to. So a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasts to go back and listen to uh, for the listeners as well after this one. <laughs> You, do you know that story of um so when you were explaining uh how you got to do the grats that kind of gave me uh the tinder swindler vibes where <laughs> i don't know if you guys oh, saw the documentary yeah, yeah. but it's it. like selling the dream but yeah I, i'm happy it worked out you know but you never know like i don't know if there's any stories out there you know of like academy players or you know release players like are they promised something and you're not given it or you know if you pay for something i i, I don't know i don't know if it's quite common or mm. if you've heard of any yeah so yeah, so Johnny, I've heard of um, I've heard of some really dodgy agents. There's some great agents out there. I'm not saying don't get an agent for those of you who are listening about agents, uh, but I have heard of some very dodgy agents who have, um who charge a thousand dollars. They send you a message on Instagram. They give me a thousand dollars, and I'll get you to the top league in Spain, or I'll get you to Benfica, and you mm -hmm. can go and play for them. And it, <laughs> there's some really dodgy agents out there who are just in it for the money. And I actually had a friend. Um, I, this was over in Australia. I played with him this season. Um, and he's this African kid, so he's really, really desperate. He wants to try and play at the highest level he can with football, and he'll take anything he gets. So this guy reached out to him, said he was an agent, said he could get him in, um, in at the top club in Italy, so one of the best clubs there. And he said, right, you've got to send me $1,000, and I'll get you in here. He sent him $1,000, and he never heard from the guy again. Mm -hmm. 
so there can be some really, really dodgy agents out there, but there's, there's some great ones as well. Don't get me wrong. And having an agent definitely does help you as a footballer because it opens up your uh, opens up your opportunities, right, to getting clubs. Yeah, your, your network. But yeah, I think I heard a couple of stories like that as well. So I was really curious to, uh, you know, to hear about what you thought about it. But yeah. I think that's a, an important point. And, you know, I've seen this something completely different to football. Um I think when you're looking for an agent, rather than, you know, you say you can, they can get you in Benfica and the top Spanish league and, and things like that, you know, as a self-employed person, who would you rather go with? Would you rather go with the person who's been recommended loads through recommendations? Or would you go with the person who, you know, sort of looks the part and can is telling you all these big clubs that you can go to? Uh, which one would you rather go with? And, and personally, if I was looking for an agent, I definitely recommend, you know, looking for the people who have got those high recommendations and uh, a, a lot of players have worked with them before and had success. Yeah, one thing I'd say that all of this, um, I'd say a lot of players do go out hunting for different clubs and different agents and they're always trying to find the next best thing. So there's this one guy I follow on TikTok and his name's Sahil Var. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Uh, um, I think so. No, okay, I yeah, think... so I think I've yeah, seen yeah, a okay. couple of videos, yeah. Right, right, yeah. So he's just he's hunting these new clubs all the time, mm. and he's always on new trials. And I actually made a Stitch video about it, and you know, it was re- really positive. I like to be positive with everything I say, um, and I was kind of just being honest with people. And I was like, listen, you know, th- this is great going to new clubs and hunting um, professional contracts all the time. But I think what you need to do is just stay for a season at one club, play as well as you can, get 30, 40 games under your belt, get some good footage. It doesn't matter if it's a lower league, get some good footage. Go and send that out to different clubs or talk to an agent and then start looking for better teams rather than always moving around to different clubs. It's, it's hard. You know, I've done that in England, moving to different clubs. I, I'm glad I started at Billericay in a lower league where I got game time rather than trying to look for this Premier League club or this championship club that was never going to happen for me. Because, you know, I, I, like I got criticism from some of my mates in Australia when I first went to Billericay Town and they weren't... They went, mate, you're playing in like Div 9 in England. You've moved all the way as a 16-year-old over from Australia. Why the heck are you doing this, mate? <laughs> what's, yeah. what's the point of you being there? I'm like, well, firstly, Div 9 in England is actually very good <laughs> or whatever division they were. Um, and secondly, like, you know, you've got to start somewhere to get your foot in the door and try and get as many games as you can in that team. And you want to be playing at the end of the day and you want to have game footage. Mm-hmm. So go down that route. Don't just, don't just spend your life hunting. I definitely think going and getting first team football is definitely so important. I think a lot of people can get lost in the under 23s and the under 18s and then, you know, they get released and it's sort of, you know, what have you got? Um, I saw that you went on to sign for 1874 Northwich. And so you've had a lot of experience in the lower leagues of England. What are the main things that you've learned from playing in the lower leagues of English football that you've maybe taken into now playing back in Australia? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so playing in the lower leagues in England is very physical, right? Um, yeah. you know, you, you've got a lot of savage tackles where people are trying to break your ankles and go through you, yeah. especially because it's wetter. And it's like playing in a mud bath. Um, so yeah. there's no control to how anyone tackles. Um, so yeah, I've learned to be quicker with the ball to try and move it in one, one and two touches in the right areas. Um, that's definitely one thing I've learned playing through the lower leagues. Um, another thing I've learned is communication, how important that is. Um, so learning to communicate better with my centre-backs because I'm a right-back. Um, you know, often playing in the academy teams, we we didn't communicate with each other a lot in these academy teams that I was playing in um, just because 
we felt so we we kind of saw each other as we were the same age right so you're playing with other 17 year olds when you're in an academy you feel well i'm not going to boss these guys around why should i boss these guys around and you just kind of you don't open your mouth but then when you get into first team football you realize that you need to be mature and if i if i tell a 25 or a 26 year old something that's you know four years older than me he, he's got to listen if i'm telling him the right information because it's just communication it's not me bossing him around mm. 100%. Do, do, do you feel like you've grown physically as well from that experience or do you feel like you've just got cleverer uh, in terms of, you said you've, you've obviously been able to move the ball quicker, um, but do you think you've developed a bit of physicalness that you maybe took to Australia now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely developed more physicalness. Um, obviously in the gym as well. Um, yeah, I've, I've gotten smarter on the field as well, learning to move the ball faster, I think, and take your touch into the right areas sometimes sometimes taking a first touch nice and close to you right but when you have space taking a first touch in front of you or maybe to the left or to the right so having a smarter first touch and if there's any australian listeners actually it applies to english listeners or wherever you're from as well first touch is something i learned in england the most i would say my first touch wasn't great in australia because i saw a good first touch is close to my body yeah. a good first touch is somewhere where it sets you up for your pass that could be it could be taking it to the left of a defender it could be taking a big touch into space it doesn't matter where but Taking the first touch that sets you up is something that I learned in England. Yeah, 100%. For sure. Well, a question I had was, you know, which climate do you prefer playing in? Obviously, you've got two extremes there. You've got the, the sun in Australia and then you've got, you know, the cold in England. Which do you, uh, which do you prefer playing in? So I like playing in the southern, uh, southern side of Australia, like in Melbourne where I am now. It's a bit colder, um, but I, I like living in Queensland which is further north in Australia in nice warm temperatures. Like my girlfriend will say the same. She's from Gold Coast. She's actually sitting here right now. She's, um, she loves the hot temperatures. We love living in that weather, but playing football is too hard in the heat. Um, so I struggled with the temperatures in England. It's so cold, right, Buzz? Yeah. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Like during winter, I sort of go missing from the group chat football. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly we start getting into spring again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm available. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not injured anymore. Not injured anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Ham- hamstrings suddenly got better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you mute the group chat all of so you're yeah. not getting stick from anyone? Yeah, yeah. It's like, I just see the at, at side where they're like, are you available? Uh, just don't even open it. So they haven't seen it. <laughs> Another so interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, you go on, man. I was just going to say, another interesting question was, like, do you prefer playing in the morning or, like, afternoon, or do you prefer evening games? Like, I'm I'm an evening person. I, I'm well awake in the evening. Like, during the afternoon, I'm, like, still digesting my food from the day and stuff, so I'm a bit, like, nappy, yeah, but, yeah. yeah, I prefer. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. so with me, John, I'd say, when I was younger, I used to love playing in the morning because that's when all our games were. I mean, yeah. sometimes we'd have like a nine, we'd have an eight o'clock kickoff in the Gold Coast, which is like three hours from Toowoomba. So we'd have to get up at like four or five a.m. for some matches. So obviously I didn't like that, but I didn't mind a kind of mid-morning 10 or 11 a.m. kickoff. Mm. When I was younger, when I started to get older, I was like, I don't want to be waking up at nine for a game anymore. Even mm. waking up at nine was a struggle on a weekend. So I, I much prefer the nighttime kickoffs now. And it's probably just because I've acclimatized to it. Because in the non-league in England, right, you play a bit later on. Mm. Um, and you know at different clubs one thing I did struggle with when I first got to England was the nighttime trainings when I at, sorry when I first kind of got into the senior football so when in the academy we'll train during the day and then when I got into Villa to play first team in 21s 
you know, training was at 7.45 p.m. and I was going to bed at 8 o'clock sometimes. So I had to completely adapt my sleep cycle to the trainings, which were at 8 o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah like I've got, I'm sort of the same where, you know, we've, I play five aside with my friends. Like that, that's sort of what I like playing, you know, lots of touches on the ball. And, um, you know, we, we've got a slot that's nine till 10 p.m. And, you know, I have work at like six o'clock the next morning. And, mm. man, because I'm so like amped up from, from, from the football, you know, like a bit of adrenaline's pumping and things like that. I find it hard to go to sleep until like 1 a.m. because I've got a shower, then I've got to relax and then get into a nighttime routine. And mm. yeah, it's so difficult um, training at night, I feel. Yeah. I, yeah, I had that as well. So I was playing games on like Monday nights. Uh, I was playing for a decent oh. team here um, back in Belgium. And um, yeah, games were so late. Like we'd start at like quarter to nine or something and if it was away you'd be at home at like midnight um and my body was still warm from the game you know like I couldn't give I couldn't shut my eyes and I think it's a problem with a lot of pro footballers um from my experience working in clubs like if, if there's a bad game like for them it's it's really difficult to to fall asleep like especially if you make a mistake like you know when your eyes are shut you, all you can think yeah, about sure. is you know the mistake or what you could have done yeah it's things we don't see and we don't really talk about is it the struggles of the football industry man 100 yeah. any player doesn't matter what level they're at you could be nine years old and you'll feel it just as much as us so uh, it's something i struggled with when i was younger i couldn't get to sleep same as you yeah. after games i played bad and i'd be thinking about that for the next week to come it, it's amazing how much it affects us imagine mm. if we could just not let it affect us yeah <laughs> i imagine that would be class. <laughs> um, talking about, you know, letting it affect some things, you know, I'd be interested to know about, especially for listeners out there, you know, what's sort of your pre-match routine and also what's your post-match routine um, after a game, you know, what are the processes that you go through? Yeah, yeah, great question, Oliver. So I actually like to focus on things away from football rather than focusing on, you know, like sports psychology when it comes to football or focusing on what I need to do in the game. Sounds quite weird, but what I've found it has started working for me. So the morning of the game, I'll go and do something completely unrelated to football. So obviously not running around and doing anything crazy, but I might go and watch, uh, you know, watch a TV series that I'm that I'm currently watching, like the Ozarks. Um, I might go out and shop with, shop for a little bit with my miso or something like that, and I might take my mind off football. And then when it comes to, all right, I'm getting ready for the game. Four hours, three hours before the game, I'll start getting ready. I might put some music on, completely unrelated to to football nothing that's going to psych me up too much just some relaxing music like here in australia we like to listen to some bands like the jungle giants sticky fingers all kinds of different bands stuff like that so i'll, I'll just kind of like relax I'll, I'll kind of be like yeah whatever and then i'll get to the game i'll psych myself up a little bit when i arrive with some some more upbeat music and then i'll start focusing what i need to do so yeah essentially just to sum it up yeah, i'll try and take my mind off football that's my routine yeah, yeah it's definitely interesting I think we had we've had a lot of Olympians on, um, and you know they talk about um, when they get to that point of competition. There's no point really thinking about you know it, the the everything that's possible to be done has been done. So it's just about going and performing now. So they sort of take their mind off things, you know, watching a show or or something like that. That's, that's completely different. Uh, you know, they're performing on the highest stage at Olympic level. So. Um, it's interesting that you say that. What about post-match? Um, 
Yeah, so post match, I guess, starting from when we get into the change rooms. Um, so usually, like as a team, we'll go and listen to some music. You won't even be able to speak to each other because the music's blaring so loud. Um, if we've had a win, um, obviously, if we haven't had a win, then it'll be pretty quiet in the change rooms. Um, we usually sing a team song. When I was in Toowoomba, we'd have our team song whenever we'd win. We'd be like, thunder, yada, 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 <laughs> whatnot, whatever. I won't sing here. It'll take too long. So we'd usually do that as a team. We'd go and grab some food, have a chat. Um, obviously not talking too much about football, just chatting about random things. Um, drive home, go back and watch a movie, um, eat some dinner. Usually it's it's late when we finish because, you know, our games will be at like 7.45 sometimes here. So by the time you get home, if it's an away game, it might be midnight, it might be 11. You have work the next morning sometimes. Um, so I find it really hard to unwind after a game. Obviously, I will have to eat. I struggle to eat after a game. I can't eat big meals after a match. And I'll try and unwind it. It could be 2 a.m. By, by the time I sleep. Mm, yeah. What about like looking after your body? Do you um, what, what what sort of recovery do you do after a game? Yeah, yeah. So um, my recovery after a game um, on a good day usually involves doing a pool recovery session um, in my pool at home back in Toowoomba. So we'll go and do nice. 10, 15 minutes of running. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's right. You've got, you've got over <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's my dream. Like me and John always talk about, you know, eventually we'll move to Spain and uh, we'll have like next door to each other with pools and that. <laughs> that's the dream. Yeah, yeah. Retire in Spain. Yeah, love it. Hopefully one day. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Because that's that's the next the hottest country to England, um, and you need to get yourself a villa or something. It's it's quite funny because my grand keeps saying to me, she said this since I was sixteen. And I moved over to England. She said, right, when are you going to buy me my villa? And I yeah. said, I said, I don't know if I can afford one, Grant. She goes, no, when you were playing football, yeah. you're going to buy me a villa. Yeah. She keeps saying that to me, but hopefully one day that'll work out. We'll see. I believe. I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Take so, it day by day, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting getting your insight into your routines. Um, yes, yeah, uh, I, I love that sort of thing. And, you know, I love seeing the TikToks. I, I'm like obsessed with you know day in the lives and seeing how other people see their lives i feel like that's a real gem on you know what how to maybe if you if you're going to try and create some content i feel like day in the lives is so effective i always watch day in the lives uh yeah. whether it's like in different walks of life it doesn't have to be what i'm doing it can be completely different i take things from everyone's routine and try and apply it into my own to sort of yeah. maximize yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny you say that Oliver because the last like 10 videos that have come up on my for you page have been day in the life or football related I had a Crystal Palace um, youth team player come up on my feed I had a Man City player I've had all kinds of different players come up on my for you page on TikTok about day in the life and it's an interesting one because I've done a few day in the life so I've done two or three and one of my ones did really really well and I've been thinking about doing more but then you know I've been in a tough space right now with creating content because I feel like I'm reusing a lot of my old content that's not doing as well right now. So I feel like I'm going through one of those, as they as they like to say, creative blocks where my content's not doing as well and I feel like I'm just overusing my old content and it's kind of drying up. So I feel like I want to make some new content. And one thing I've been struggling with right in Melbourne, obviously with a new team and stuff and a new setup, being careful because everyone here knows about my TikToks in Melbourne. Right, so everyone knows about knows that I do TikTok. It's a small industry here in Melbourne, the football industry. And I'm trying to be careful of not doing too many crazy things on TikTok. You know, you know what the banter's like in the change room. You do something and then you never hear the end. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've struggled a little bit with the TikToks because I've been a little bit careful. 
um, the last few months. And I feel like my content hasn't been as good because I haven't been showing everyone the stuff I could be. I haven't been taking a camera to, to the trainings and the change rooms. And I haven't been doing any of this stuff. I've just been making a video every once once or two weeks and just using old content. Mm. Yeah. No, I definitely feel like the day in the lives. Um, I mean, I think me and John should start doing some, you know, about, you know, um, the journey of being a sports psychologist and you know I do a lot of stuff during my day that I think a lot of trainees wouldn't even believe that like I do manual labor for a job alongside this oh. and, you know so like I run a gardening company so like I'm hustling to fund my uh, sports psychology journey and I think that's a reality for a lot of sports psychologists that especially when they're doing their undergrad and masters that they don't really realize how difficult it's going to be when they get out. There's a lot of money you have to pay out before you even think about starting earning money. And it's not funded by the, the government or anything. It's funded by yourself. So mm-hmm. I think creating that awareness um, is something that me and John could do and a lot, not a lot of sports psychologists are doing. Um, so I think, yeah, we should definitely start looking at, you can help us out with some with our TikTok game. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. You guys have definitely found the market there. Uh, I think you need to raise some awareness, and TikTok is the place to grow at the moment. Right? It's so so much easier to grow than any other platform. So I reckon you should do more of that. And I was just going to ask a question to you as well. Um, well, I'll start with you, John. So, like, what what kind of things are you doing with sports psychology at the moment? Um. So, essentially, so Oliver and I are taking a route where we've basically done the stage one of getting accredited, which is all the theoretical. So that was university basically. So, and it was five years of studies, four or five years of studies. And now we're kind of focusing on the applied route. So getting the um, applied skills. So consulting one-to-one, working in governing bodies, uh, sports teams. And we're actually currently um, setting up our own consultancy to consult with different athletes from all different sports. So, um, yeah, it's all about supporting uh, athletes reach their goals and ambitions. Um, if they're experiencing any like performance slumps, um, anything that's preventing them from actually achieving those goals and ambitions. Um, and yeah, it, it, and it doesn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't have to be when athletes have a have an issue. It can be ambitious athletes, you know, that that want to improve their performance, want to find you know techniques that they can apply to themselves. Um, which I think is a really common misconception in our field. It's not only like you don't only have to seek sports psychology support when things don't go right. You can use it to your advantage. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell what, what we're kind of doing at the moment. Well, that, that sounds great, John. And it's, it's, the, it's a classic. Oh, sorry, mate. Um, I was just saying it's a classic problem of feeling good. It's a classic problem of feeling good, right? When you're feeling good, you don't need any help. So you yeah. go, I'm not going to go and treat my body. I'm not going to go and work on my mind when you're feeling good, right? But that's when we need to work on ourselves when we're feeling good week in, week out to make sure we keep feeling good. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like, like, you know, it's like going to the gym, like training your muscles. Your brain can be trained uh, as well. Um, because obviously, like this is what I, how, I, how, how I see it. It's like prevention is better than cure. So why wait until yeah. a problem occurs? Like you can prevent it or like deal with it in the moment if your brain is trained or, you know, you've learned these skills and stuff like that. So yeah the whole reason why the whole reason why i got into psychology why i find it so interesting to do was because you know i feel like the the quote for me is like the difference between being good or great is being able to perform when it really matters and Mm. you know you you can be the most technically gifted footballer or olympian or anything you can can be the best in your sport technically but if you can't perform when it really matters 
then you know what 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 good's that? Um, it's going to be about who's mentally there on the day and, and can use their skills effectively. Is who's, who's going to perform best? And if I can help uh, facilitate that and help athletes reach that um, mental optimal mental state to perform on the day, then you know that's my mission complete, really. Yeah, yeah. And just to add to that is like. Um... There's a huge focus on like, you know, the whole well-being of the athlete. So what we've basically talked about throughout this whole podcast, making the athlete realize, you know, they're more than just an athlete. Um, they're the they're a person as well, because, you know, athletes' careers are quite short. So um, it's all about preparing them for after after sports as well. Um, and another thing I was going to add to your point, oh, is that, you know, in the at elite level, it, every like technically and physically, I think athletes are kind of at the same level. You can only reach a certain, you know, level of um, physical, you know, performance. So I think, like you said, oh, it's it's really the mental side that um, differentiates, like the winners, you know, um, the gold medal, the silver medal. You know, I think. Yeah, and I I agree with that a lot, John, because it's like, why can a player like Messi go and play amazing and score score three goals one game, and then the next game he goes and 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 plays maybe poorly? Or not as well as he could. So it's, it's obviously not down to his ability because he's not going to get worse in one game, is it? It's obviously down to his confidence or something that's going on in the mind. So I definitely agree with that. And touching on another thing as well is um because I was thinking about this the other day. Um, as I was saying to you guys, I was looking on the PFA website. Mm. I was like, you know, what, what if we could get some kind of counselling? And it'd be great to see someone every week to just someone that can check up on me or someone that I can talk to. Um, so you know, do you think kind of like targeting the issue? Um, the athlete experiences such as like something in the family might be happening um, or they might lack confidence in a certain area off the field, maybe talking about those things with athlete rather than just the sport itself. A hundred percent. And that's our role as sports psychologists is to like, once again, you're more like, you're more than just an athlete. Like more, there's more times where it will be a problem in your personal life that it's affecting your actual performance on the mm. pitch. So it's really, yeah, you're totally right there. It's really about digging, uh, finding out more about their personal life, like what, what's going on at home, their relationships, uh, their support systems. It's really, you know, d- digging a bit deeper in that aspect and targeting that first. And then after maybe, you know, any performance related uh, concerns. I know you all, you have a really good example of uh, the Jesse Lingard example. Uh, I don't know if you want to kind of shed light on that. Just before we move on to that, you talk about that counselling. Um... I just wanted to bring up this point before I forget. Um, one thing, I've done a lot of research around, you know, uh, when, when players get released um, and, you know, the support that they got off, offered by the club. Um, mm. you know, are they going to want to go back to that club where they've just been released and that they've got a bit of, you know, resent towards that? I was speaking with a, a coach at a mm. Premier League club, uh, actually a sports psychologist, and it was like, you know, we offer the support, but very rarely do they come back and get that. So maybe... You know, if the FA look at, you know, getting an external um, source of, of counselling, like, you know, ourselves, yeah. and, um, you know, they can come to us. And we've got no connection to the club, really. We're just there really to support the athlete rather than support the club um, and, and just offer support for support's sake. Mm. Yeah, like a third party, isn't it? Someone yeah. who, who hasn't really been involved in the release process, like releasing process. Yeah, I think it's it could be key. It could be key. Yeah, even constantly throughout that. Yeah, before they've been released. Hundred percent because yeah, that's right. Yeah, because you guys come across as a mate of that academy player, then, and you're just like, 
you're like Jordan, you got released by Doncaster, stuff these guys, we're going to help you. That kind mm. of point of view rather than, right, well, we work for the club and we're here to help you. Mm. Like I said, they're not going to like that. Yeah. yeah sure. I actually asked um, that question all, uh, to a sports psychologist. Um, I think he's at Norwich. And um, he kind of said that to kind of combat that because we don't have those third-party support systems to kind of like cook, like deal with that it's important for the sports psychologist to develop a really strong relationship with the athlete. So, so when they get released, they can feel that they can still talk to the sports psychologist despite not being at the club. Um, so I think for also any sports psychologist, like aspiring sports psychologist listening to us, I think prioritize building that relationship and that report um, with, with the athlete because, you know, they could come back to, to you for support. So, yeah. And what, what's the first step you would take, um, John, to say an 18-year-old just being released from an academy and you built up a relationship with them, what, what's the first step you would take to help them? Um, that's a tough question because I've never actually been in that situation yet. But what I would do is just probably just have a session where they just talk, basically. I'm, I'm there to listen. I want them to, you know talk do the work essentially not me talking just i want to hear what they what they're feeling what they're experiencing um and then from that maybe like i don't know i think first um, meetings really about understanding the complexity exactly, yeah. understanding the complexity of the situation mm. and where do we go from here because i think it's all case by case every every situation is going to be different so it's hard to say it's all, all dependent on what comes up in that in that situation it all depends on Obviously, I've done a you know positive transition factors and negative transition factors, and uh, so I'd really start addressing that identity point um, and yep. you know having a look at you know what are the next steps, um, you know what have you got that's attached to your identity. Um, just getting them to talk me through like like we've done today really about their journey, um, their interests, and things like that, mm. um, so we can have a look at what's what's going to be in the future for them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's just making them understand that there are people here to help that they do have a support system and you know there are genuine person people to to support them i think it's just important you know it's really the rapport building at the start for me is that's kind of my approach really having that connection with them and yeah that's what we're sort of doing with this podcast with this podcast you know we're trying to really come across as you know approachable people i think a lot of sports psychology podcasts the complexity of how they talk is so hard to understand, even for myself as a sports psychologist. Um, so, you know, if we can come across as approachable, a lot of athletes are going to want to come and, and, and consult with us. And, you know, I feel like we have a real gem there in terms of, you know, we're approachable guys, we're, we're here to chat and um, support you. So, and, and we're genuine as well. I feel like hopefully we'll come across that way anyway. Yeah. 100%, 100% you guys seem very genuine. Um, and- I definitely want to work with you guys in the future. I'd, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd definitely come to you guys for some help, that's for sure. Um, we all do need the help. And it's, you know, especially as a 16, 17, 18-year-old who's been released, like you were saying, you don't want some guy just to go, I'm here to help you. And you don't, you don't think you need help at that age. That's the funny thing about it. When I was at that age, I didn't want help from anyone. As you get older, you start to realise that you need help from, from various people around you. I've started to realise since I've been playing first-team football that I need it. I need a good physio with a good relationship. I need a nutritionist. I would like a nutritionist. I need someone to talk to about my mind and football. And that's three things alone right there. Different people that you need. And then a sports psychologist would be absolutely superb for young players to have to work with. Mm. I, was, I was just curious, 
have you had any experience with the sports psychologist before or like in Australia back in Australia how is kind of sports psychology perceived and is it used a lot or what's the, what's the kind of situation yeah, okay. so yeah so with that John I've, I've had no experience with a sports psychologist before I've never seen one I've never seen a counsellor either um, or anyone like that um, yeah. so it's, no, no one's ever reached out to me or given me the help playing at different clubs so it's, it's a tough one I, th- I think it needs more of in Australia and definitely England as well you need, these players need to know that there's someone there to help them. There's a professional to talk to because it's, it's all well and good saying you can speak to your mum and dad or your friends around you, but you, you really can't talk to some of your friends about some some stuff or it, you like to talk to a professional. So I haven't had much of it. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose I like did, just, yeah, just, well. I was just saying one more thing as well. Sorry, guys, to interrupt. Um, no. I read this book. I read this book called, um, it's just called Sports Psychology, actually, and it was given to me. And I read that before I went over to England and whilst I was there as well. And that was really interesting. So it wasn't working with someone, but I was just reading the book. And I was, there was a bit on uh, self-talk, actually. So it was um, talking yourself up. And at first I read it, I was like, what, self-talk? Is it, does this mean I'm arrogant? Am I, am I talking myself up? And it's like, no, it's not about that. So you, you guys know all about that. It's putting something up like a poster on your wall saying, I am the best. I am a good player. Just reassuring yourself that you're a good player. And I put one of those up on my wall and I would look at it every day. And they would say, I am the greatest. And just a little thing like that would help me a lot. We had a, a guest come on, Isis Holt. Um, and this will always, or I'll always remember this, was um, she has a, a, a bracelet that she wears right before she's about to compete. And on the bracelet, it says more than just this. And that's her sort of self-talk to say, like, it, it sort of takes the pressure off herself that she's more than just this competition that's about to happen. Um, and that allows her to perform to her, her full potential. Um, and I feel like that's really powerful um, self-talk that she's um, implemented there. Um, and it's, it's one of the clips that's really performed the best uh, in terms of what we've released recently. So it's good that um, it's being received like that as well. Yeah. Isis is Australian. She's a Paralympian. She's a five, five-time medalist. You should definitely check her out. She's a really, really, really talented athlete and uh yeah breaking records at like 14 like crazy crazy um should definitely check out i think it all does yeah i'll check her out for sure man that's that's amazing and australian as well i like that yeah um, i think it, it definitely does yeah 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 it definitely comes under pressure right for every single young player anyone out there at any age really it all comes under pressure for us because when we think this is the only thing in this game because in the moment right it's the only thing you're doing so it's everything to you if you're playing a match, it's the only thing that matters because it should be the only thing on your mind. Um, so for a, a lot of young people, they think that this is the only thing for them. If they screw up this game, then there's nothing more for them. So it's really important, like you said, to remind yourself that this is not the only thing and this is not just who I am. I'm not just a player. I'm not a footballer. I'm also I'm also whatever I am. I'm a good friend. I'm, I'm good at this. I like listening to music. Um, uh, you know, I like playing football in my spare time with other people. I'm much more than just a footballer. So reminding yourself of that before a game maybe would help a lot of young players if you just say to yourself, I'm more than just a player and life means more than just this game. So maybe if you say that to yourself and you remind yourself before you step on the pitch, you might play a whole lot better. Definitely. Definitely. Great advice. Um, just coming towards like the end of the podcast, you know, what's next for you? What, what, what are your future like goals and ambitions? Where, where do you want to take um, yourself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I'm actually injured at the moment. I was, I was meaning to bring this up, but I don't think I mentioned it. So I, I tore my hamstring um, about two weeks ago from now. 
So it was mm. two weekends ago, I tore my hamstring in a pre-season friendly in Adelaide, actually, which is in South Australia. Um, so that was playing for Heidelberg. Um, so after I tore my hamstring, the physio found out, that the physio treated me um, and he goes, right, it's looking like it's going to be four to eight weeks. And obviously I'm gutted about that. Four to eight weeks is massive because the season's starting the next week. He goes and tells the manager. Um, and the manager goes, well, listen, Jordy, it's not looking good for you. It could be anywhere from four to eight weeks and our season starts next week. We're going to need a right back. You can't play. So he sits me down and he goes, mate, we're going to have to either do one or two things. We're going to have to put you on loan or we're going to have to release you. And I'm like, shit, well, that's, that's not good. So I've moved all the way up here from Queensland to go and play football in Melbourne, moved all my things, moved up with my girlfriend for new opportunity, signed with Heidelberg, spend the whole preseason with Heidelberg, the full 10 weeks there, just before the season starts, tear my hamstring eight centimetres, get told by the coach, we're going to have to either release you or loan you out. The coach goes for the decision, we're going to have to release you. So I end up going to another club. Um, and this is recently, just last week, I went to uh, went to another club, which is a few divisions below Heidelberg. Um, and I'm just at, just at, at that club rehabbing myself at the moment, mm-hmm. getting through it. Jesus, man. Yeah, yeah. Seems like I've been really unlucky with like injuries like happening right before pivotal moments. Like, how damaging has that been, or or have you had a positive outlook on that? How do you view these situations when they arise? Oh, mate, I was gutted at first, really negative, really negative mindset I was in when I first found out. Um, obviously, absolutely gutted. I've moved all the way up here from Queensland and and now I'm not even at this club that I started at in Melbourne. So I'm on to a new club. So, yeah, man, it was really hard coping with this injury, not being able to do anything. I remember the next day after the injury, I couldn't even walk and I had to go to work. So I had to hop, I had to hop into my car and get to work. Um, so yeah, absolutely gutted, man. But there is positive outcomes from this situation as well. It's made me miss football, and I want to come back and play. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think injury is a really interesting one. Uh, we we talk a lot about you know the positive outcomes from injury. Like for me, for example, if it wasn't for my injury um, back in the day, I don't think I would be you know taking this career path as a sports psychologist. So I definitely think there are some positives. It, you might not see them right now at this present moment, but I, I know like once you're recovered, you know, once you're back, you, you'll realize it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I empathize with you, mate. Like, I, I understand. John's done a lot of research around sports injuries. You know, all of his um, dissertations that he's done at undergrad and masters have been on sports injuries. So. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's, I just feel like, you know, experiencing like a really bad injury, like yourself, really allows you to connect with someone that's you know living it presently so i'm not saying you have to get injured to understand but i'm saying it helps understand the the person in front of you definitely 100 yeah another day i'd like to chat more about injuries man um i I definitely think you could help me with my injury and a lot of young players out there because i know there's a few players on tiktok who have said they're injured they want more rehab videos and and how to cope with it mentally as well not just Mm. how to cope with it physically yeah. Um, so you yourself you were playing at a good level then you got injured uh, yeah John yeah yeah so uh, I, I actually played at a better level it was like after my injury I got injured quite early on um, so it was like a really bad knee injury I got tackled in the in the knee area which snapped my patella tendon um, so I had to get screws put in um, I was out for around six months and um, ha- played with the screws in for, for a year and then uh, had them taken out um and yeah, my knee doesn't really look the same anymore. It's kind of bumpy and I've got a, a long scar. 
Um, but yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I went through it now because it's just made me, you know, have such a different outlook on life and, you know, the people around me that supported me. And, you know, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's at the end of the, like, like I said, although I didn't think it was a good experience whilst I was living it, now that I reflect on it, it's, it's, it's made me grow so much as a person, honestly. Definitely. That's great advice, man. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. 100%. But, um, but no, in terms of like all the questions that we had for you, they were all the questions. So it's been a pleasure, pleasure chatting with you. It's been a really valuable podcast to our listeners, a valuable podcast to me. Um, I've learned a lot and I feel like a lot of our academy listeners will also take a lot. And even the coaches, clubs, I mean, there's so much information that's been integrated into that podcast that people can take away and use. Um, so thank you for coming on and sharing your story chatting with us and uh taking time to talk with us yeah it was a, it was a pleasure yeah yeah really appreciate that thanks for having me on here Ollie and John uh, I really hope some of these academy players can um, can learn something from what we spoke about especially um players like us having been involved in that situation mm-hmm. um and coming out of it better people so I really hope some of those players can come out of that being better people and for those who have never been involved in the academy um those who've never been involved in the academy that's fine um, it's not the only way, and there's there's plenty more things you can do with your life um, it, along alongside playing football as well. Sure. Yeah, me and John are doing that now. Like we did make it. Uh, we soon realised we weren't going to make it professional, and we're, you know, taking the route of sports psychologists. Um, that, that's the thing that we feel, you know, we took interest in the most, and uh, yeah, we're pursuing it. There's a lot of other things, you know. I, I went to my new yesterday, and the amount of people that were on the pitch supporting the players was unbelievable. The amount of different roles that the clubs have. So there's definitely something out there for everyone. So, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So you went to the Manchester United Academy yesterday? No, no, no. It was just the, the game. Oh, just the game, yeah. yeah. When, when they were warming up, like the amount of uh, people that were on the pitch, like even for the Southampton setup as well, younger yeah. lads. And, yeah, there's, uh, there's all sorts of roles that you, you can yeah, take yeah, in the yeah. club. So. Mm. Yeah, all right. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share it with your friends or someone you would feel would benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.